No, it's not on. Okay. Bertolt Brecht has a kind of intense poem that I like. Um, I use it in my writing practice sometimes. The very simplest words must be enough. When I say what things are like, everyone's heart must be torn to shreds. That you'll go down if you don't stand up for yourself. Surely you see that. That's a little bit of a post-World War II emotional intensity. But it's also related to, um, since it's Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom to all of you um, Jewish people and to all of us here. Hillel said, if I'm not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? I think that's a wonderful way of talking about the spirit of this practice. That what we're doing here is of a kind of intimacy that no one can do for us. You know, if the Buddha in his great compassion could have done this practice for us, I'm sure he would have. And if any one of us could do this for the rest of us, we would surely do it. Actually, when the Dalai Lama was at MIT, he said, it's your job to invent a compassion pill, and I will be the first to take it. <laughs> but so far, we haven't found the pill. This is, what we, this is how we have to do it. And it, actually, I think there's something very beautiful about that, which I hope by the end of the talk to have kind of brought us into the zone of having a feeling for that. It's nice to think of our practice not as like just we should be with our breath and if not, we're a failure, um, even though it can feel like that, like you're always falling off this straight and narrow line of awareness. I think it's helpful to think of our awareness as a form of compassion that we're giving to ourselves, this attention that we're paying deeply to our experience in the moment. It's very intimate. It's very compassionate. It's something that... Um, each of us can only do for ourselves, and yet we also can't really do it alone. The teachers and the teachings that have helped all of us and this group situation where if there weren't all of us sitting here, none of us would be sitting here. Um, and we thank you for not, you know, when everyone has plotted their escape and wished to run screaming out of the room, sometimes we find the way of just staying a little bit longer here together. And in that, we support each other through something that is often a little hairy. So in this um, maybe core message of the course that we are trying to teach here, the kind of some of the grounding or ideas to guide you and maybe inspire you and let you see life from a different angle, you know, for yourselves to see if it resonates with something that feels true for you or true as a possibility the sense that happiness is a skill and that suffering is somewhat optional or maybe the degree of suffering is a little malleable to us. What this is talking about is our relationship to our experience. Like we choose as much of our experience as it's possible to choose. And then there's an el sort of a boundary beyond which we don't have a choice always about the things that happen. And that's where uh, this practice can work. So it's our relationship to what comes up in life. And here we're doing it moment by moment and breath by breath. It's like we're looking at sort of the ground. Um, and maybe it seems rougher because we're looking at it with a microscope, something like previous, you know, when you look at your skin under a microscope, all of a sudden it's really, or all the bugs in your eyelashes or something. That's kind of like our, our mind. And I'm hoping that, and Howie is also hoping that we can see kind of by understanding how uh, attention practice can work in our own experience and to see deeply how our being responds to our practice, that you'll understand something and you'll have something that can't be taken from you. Um, and the impact of this kind of practice definitely grows over time. As Howie was talking about um, poetically last night, that the sunlight strikes the rose and the rose gradually opens with the warmth of the sun. 
Like maybe we're very beautiful when we're a tightly furled bud, but maybe we don't see the beauty of ourselves until more and more the mindfulness opens us up. And there's a slowness in that, like roses don't always open um, overnight. You know, you've seen those beautiful time-lapse photographs that show you know, the kind of progression of growth and opening. And that's a little bit like us, a time-lapse photograph that we can shift our responses and patterns in ways that over time will be dramatic. But it actually has to be done and the effort has to be made in the moment to moment way. What we're doing here is a very intensive kind of cultivation and some uh, orientation toward attention and presence in life is extremely valuable. Our teacher, Manindraji, who taught a three month course here in 1983 and maybe some previous years, said um, his, recent, his recent biography was published called Living This Life Fully, which also talks about the spirit of the practice, that, just that title, Living This Life Fully. Talking about the process that some of us have been you know, discussing in the small groups and in the question and answer, our whole inner being comes into the conscious level with this kind of awareness. Nothing remains hidden. It is the process of self-discovery. As we go deeper and deeper, then those impressions that have accumulated in our daily lives by action and reaction come up to the surface level and they're washed away in every moment of just being noticed. Sometimes there will be happiness, sometimes unhappiness, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes disturbed, sometimes concentrated. Our duty is just to be mindful and not to be stuck to the phenomena. Awareness and equanimity, those two go together. Actually, awareness is sort of equanimous already. The uh, mindfulness that we bring to each moment is related to the impartiality that's already at the core of our mind that sort of is what the aspect of our knowing that simply knows what's happening. And when you recognize that your mind is actually already naturally knowing everything. Sometimes it can feel that the difference between being mindful and just being is quite a subtle thing. But I think for most of us, you need to do that turn of recognition or that turn of generating some sense of connection to awareness and even a uh, somewhat forcefully generated mindfulness is quite helpful and a collected mind, as we also said, to gather the attention and focus it with a little bit more along our lines of our intention and then to open up to what the experience is, to aspects of practice that we're cultivating here. So it's not always a process of years and years that it takes. Like sometimes we can be in the course of a single afternoon. Like I remember one time I was doing walking meditation around a circle in this meditation hall and it's actually the pillow that I am sitting on right now that a friend had made for me and I didn't like it. And I thought she had made like a nicer pillow for herself and given me the one that was kind of not as nice. And I was in such a rage about it and it was so uncomfortable. (laughs) And then suddenly the rage kind of dissolved into a sense of like real sadness, you know, and in the sadness there was a kind of a softness and I thought, you know, maybe, you know, she gave me such a nice, cushion actually, and I actually really love it now. It, it was moving through sort of the relationship to the whole object and seeing that underneath the anger was something much softer and you know easier to move with. Or seeing that like if you're in a kind of agitated mood, which um, Sayada Upandita likes to call uh, vipassana indigestion. <laughs> when it's like the awareness just isn't really very strong or, you know, and you work with it and work with it and it's very unpleasant and there's not very much power in the observation. You just feel kind of swamped. And then suddenly you see that it's like the critical piece in all of this that's keeping it so horrible is the judgment of your experience. You know, Suddenly it becomes clear like you're trying to bring and bring and bring awareness and compassion and suddenly like for some unpredictable reason in its own time, the wisdom arises kind of it's seemingly out of its own sphere, like a a form of grace. And then you're just in the seeing that, oh my God, it's just that I'm judging myself. 
and then it kind of falls away, it resolves, or it goes down to a more bearable level. The aversion to the aversion raises everything to an intolerable pitch. And when you finally realize that it's kind of redoubled in that way or magnified, you take one layer away and the rest of it becomes digestible very often. And these can take you know, place in the cycle of a number of hours. And very often it is when you sort of give up slightly that the opening can come. When you have the cup of tea or you stop struggling in quite the same terms, then another level kind of becomes available. So this way that in seeing clearly and compassionately, a lot of our troubles can become diffused. It's kind of why in, when people use elevated language about awareness or kindness, that it's a panacea. It's kind of heals everything that happens inside us. Howie's talked about it in various ways, and there's sort of different aspects in the jewel of awareness. Some of it is just being able to notice just being able to notice that my mind is working hard on a project. I'm trying to remember the tune of a song. Like, am I really meditating? Well, a minute I'm noticing, it's fine. It's actually okay. Or warming up to it, warming up to our experience, being willing to come close to where we're actually at, bringing the mind and body into the same place, bringing our heart and our emotions into the same place. Or we may be feeling a sense of great calm and peace and stillness and pleasure and openness in that. And then all of a sudden, we start to enjoy it and revel in it. And suddenly, this little there's a grasping that we aren't quite aware of. And the thought will come up, pretty soon, I'm not going to have this. This is going to go away in the future. And then a cascade of other painful thoughts comes along. And we believe it, we buy into it, these kind of called lies of the mind that kind of bring us all the way back down to square one again. But what's beautiful is that we're always on square one. Like we're always in this moment with whatever the moment brings with as much resource as we can find. Sometimes um, when we get into a place of great struggle, it's really important to move to some place where you feel a little more peaceful, as Howie was saying in the Q&A, like to not muscle through a pain in your knee or to not muscle through a mental state, but to have a sense of a little bit of surrender or a little bit of backing off or a little bit of going outside and just spending time looking at a beautiful tree. That's part of seeing clearly is recognizing uh, the times in our experience when we might need a little extra support. So mindfulness is related in a way to this kind of intelligence of rebalancing. It's actually bringing ourselves so that a certain kind of natural intelligence or intuition can uh, play more freely. Um, we're less tied to old agendas and the thing that worked last time. We're a little more sensitive to what's going on. Like today I was in the lunch line and yesterday Somehow I had been trying to come down the stairs and get in the lunch line, and more and more people were coming from the hall, and more and more people were coming from the hall. So this time I was determined to not end up behind all the people who were coming from the hall, so I like stepped in front of someone. And that person happened to be just trying to walk through and get to the other, they were someone from the second lunch. And I thought, I didn't really, like, because of what had happened yesterday, I was like going to fix it from yesterday. But it didn't work for the situation today, because I was in a little bit of a state of obliviousness. So I apologized to that person that I stepped in front of. It's like that, that our awareness kind of fluctuates and comes and goes. And that's okay. It's actually, as I said, it's something very light, the difference between being aware and not being aware. Sharon Salzberg in her new book, uh, I think it's called Real Happiness. She gives the illustration of a businessman whose meditation consists of just noticing light and the touch of the air on his cheek as he walks to work in, in New York. And to think of what a pleasure and joy it must be for such a person, maybe with a you know, very demanding job, to take time just to feel sort of the changing natural energies or the relief that he must feel at being able to just spend time with the simplicity of nature, even the nature that's available in Manhattan. So part of um, recognizing uh, mindfulness and its value in our life and what it can do sort of for us is to sort of 
value it and begin to verify and recognize those times when it can bring us some relief or can bring us a sense of connection or intimacy. Even to be, I think for people who are meditation sort of addicts, it's like there's something about being able to be with yourself and be with yourself through some difficult experiences in these contexts that has a kind of weird, indescribable pleasure to it. I remember thinking about sadness as being rich as red velvet curtains. Um, And it's in the being with it that there's a certain kind of joy that arises that's beyond conditions. Also, Howie was talking poetically about the friend as mindfulness as being the friend. And that, too, has happened for me in my practice at times of feeling very lonely and stuff. I talked about this in one of the groups that I noticed that I wasn't completely alone because I was actually with myself. It was a kind of funny feeling the first time that happened. It's like, wow, you know what? I'm with myself. It's not so bad. (laughs) Aung San Suu Kyi in her long years of house arrest talks about that, that she was, I don't know how many years it was, off and on, probably at least 16 years, not enough food, no phone, like no opportunity to communicate sometimes for years on end. She had a couple of people that were allowed to live with her, but she couldn't talk to her followers or go outside or anything, you know, and the sense of her kind of holding so much value for people and the need to sustain her own mental state maybe is for the sake of so many others who depended on her for their courage. But she said that without this kind of meditation practice, she would have never survived. She would have really imploded um, under those conditions of just knowing the animosity the regime held for her. Actually, one of our sort of you call lineage teachers, Sayadaw Pandita, was her teacher and at great risk of his life went to teach her several times at home. I remember him saying once that a kind of thing that gave me chills. He says, um, compassion does what's necessary and awareness doesn't fear the consequences. I know another Burmese prisoner who was a uh, fellow at the Radcliffe Institute where I was a fellow a few years ago. She came the year after me. She was a medical doctor who was also put in prison for some time. And she said because of this form of meditation, she was freer than her jailers, that she and her jailers would have conversations in which the jailers would acknowledge that um, her mind was in a better state uh, than theirs was. Often the jailers would be you know, very people from very ignorant backgrounds accustomed to violence and having a violent job. So in this way, we can see that a strong mindfulness habit can be very protective for us. It's a theme that will go through this talk. When we start to see that and our mind kind of catches on, it starts to give a value to what we're doing here. And I think in a sense, when I mentioned earlier the, you know, when you start to see and feel some calm or connection or protection or safety and start to worry about not having it, there's a consciousness in there about the value of this and the, you know, what can emerge in these kind of hothouse conditions and worrying about being able to sustain it. I think um, there's an element of wisdom or intelligence in, in that, even if it is sort of worrying about something that hasn't happened yet. Um, it's true that some of, the, um, some of the, what gets built up here um, starts to dissolve when you leave, and yet you can start to really trust yourself in your orientation. If you practice every day, if you plan to come back to retreats, if you try to make friends with people that you can talk to about your meditation practice, join a group, all those things that we'll talk about at the end. There are ways of supporting it in our lives just as mindfulness supports us. So mindfulness can be with the sun on our shoulder or the touch of the breeze. It can be with an emotion. Or it can be watching kind of particle physics in the body sensations. Some of us have access to that kind of fascinating world of mere sensation where you watch very intimately in what manner each movement of the belly dissolves, whether you know, you're watching the abdomen um, Does the in-breath end suddenly, or does it sort of break into little particles and then disappear? And how does the next moment, mind moment, arise? And what happens in the gap? And how do you move your attention to the gentle touch of your lips 
to one another when the practice is deep, some of those levels become very accessible. However, there's a pattern in all of it of how experience functions that we've also been trying to speak about. Um, When the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body with its senses and its consciousness is the beginning of the world, the continuing of the world, and the ending of the world. What he was talking about is our experiential world. And it's kind of true all the way down, is that turtles all the way down, um, whether it's in a particle or in a breeze or anything. That when we look closely at sort of the mechanics of experience and desire, when there's a pleasant feeling and we like it and then we want it and we want to do something to get that, that's kind of one function that's inevitable in the mind, even at the level of tiny particles. So sometimes that's a fine process, and it's okay, and it's just the process of life, and sometimes it causes a problem. But I'd like to illustrate it in um, sort of repeating a presentation that was given to the staff the other day, just to get us accustomed to how ordinary it is. This researcher from Yale, whose name um, I'm sure that some of you remember, but I, some of you who heard the presentation remember, but I don't remember. Anyway, he said, he gave the example of your cell phone rings, and it's, you see that it's your recent um, new squeeze, and it's like, that's the ID that comes, and it's like, oh, pleasant feeling. Want to answer the call, right? That's natural, right? You want, you do. It's my baby on the line, right? Six months later, you've broken up. Same person has been calling you and calling you. (laughs) It's the same person. You don't want to answer. His illustration was, he was very funny anyway. He said, you throw the phone across the room. Now you damaged your phone. Anyway, unpleasant feeling. Then there's want to get rid of, get rid of the phone. You don't see the name anymore. So that's kind of, you know, in a certain way, that's just life. And it's fine. And uh, we just live with that. We kind of accept that, that. But looking at it very closely, there's times when those uh, mechanics become the mechanics of how the mind works and impulses work become extremely problematic for certain people and for ourselves. Like we all have places where we get kind of stuck and um, we can identify certain patterns that are harmful or strategies in our life that are unproductive that we keep on following. And it's normally because somewhere in there there's a feeling that we're not able to kind of be with that the wanting say that you know when you see that my baby's on the line and the wanting becomes really strong and you almost can't not answer so he was using the example of smoking which has become a research topic using mindfulness in smoking and uh, working with addictions that um, the desire for the cigarette comes and it just gets very linked to people celebrating, you know, the famous cigarette after sex kind of thing. Um, then, or a stressful moment to de-stress. There's a desire to reach for a cigarette. And then there's a little gratification that comes. It celebrates the happy moment. It fills the neutral moment. It sort of helps a little bit with the difficult moment. And so the mind kind of remembers that. and as that pattern gets reenacted however many times a day, then it starts to be harder to make a decision to do something different than that, to feel relief without um, that object or that substance. So in fact, when there's training in mindfulness for people to decondition those patterns, it's really around being able to be with the wanting without the reaching and to slow down the process so that the wanting isn't so intolerable that it inevitably like kind of enslaves us and makes us do the thing. They've shown that mindfulness is actually, right now these early studies are showing that mindfulness is probably the most so far better than the treatment of choice. You know, it's sort of a new treatment for those kinds of, um, you know, addiction programs. I don't know how long the teaching is, six weeks or something, very specific information about kind of bracketing those moments and the cigarette and that habit. What he said is that people who practice mindfulness uh, quit, more of them stay quitted, kind of. More of them really quit. More of them 17 weeks later are still off the cigarette. And some of them report, I got a freebie into the bargain that um, when I'm mad at people or something, I can use the same thing. 
to not say words that I'll later regret, you know, to wait a little bit with those impulses that so push us around. So we're all kind of very unique individuals, and this unfolding of the rose that I was talking about sometimes exposes places in ourselves where we're quite very raw, and it's been harder to let ourselves have those feelings. Um, so often we're on an edge uh, in our practice. It, those edges kind of come and go, and the second day of a retreat, to be honest, is also quite a difficult day. It's like You've settled in a little bit, and the mind is open a little bit, and then a lot of difficult feelings tend to come up. There's sort of a cruising altitude where um, your moments or intervals of depth, a sense of depth or clarity, um, start to unfold a little bit more. But I want to talk a little bit about... um, So, you know, addiction to a substance or a toxic substance is only one... Uh, aspect. It's kind of like a magnified version of things that our mind does all the time. I hope you all see that. We're not just talking about other people here. We're talking about ourselves, or I'm talking about myself. And it's sort of how our natural desire for happiness gets thwarted or sidetracked into things that won't actually bring the happiness that we seek and may, in fact, damage our bodies. Say, like, even around cell phones, you know, the checking your cell phone many times, um, even texting while driving, you know, the drive to be gratified through your telephone kills people, actually. You know, everyone seems to still be talking on the phone. A lot of times I see, you know, if someone is sitting there at the green light for a long time, I know they're talking on the phone. They're not actually paying attention to their driving. And there's so much more of that than there needs to be. And it's so deadly. So some of this stuff is actually dangerous. I've thought in... um, when I give the precepts that internet and phone should be moved from the silence and speech category into the intoxicant category sometimes. <laughs> so bound to that. And how shallow it can sort of make our lives. Anyway, it's kind of a weird electronic cold medium, really. So... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a structured method to work with difficult feelings, sort of to describe almost like a guided meditation that I've found useful. Um, Deconstructing our experience into sort of different aspects, just as, say, like, what happens in this sort of reaching for the cigarette or reaching for the consoling whatever it is becomes almost like a hard and rigid chain that we don't see anything modulated in. And actually, all our goals are like that. And I hope to get to that point in the talk where I talk about that a little bit more in depth and a more like cosmic resonance. But we don't see that there are lots and lots of choice points along the chain. And similarly, when we feel sort of taken over by a difficult emotion or difficult thought pattern or a sense of real strain, it can be very, very useful to use the body as an ally in our meditation practice, this connection that we're cultivating with our body. First of all, I think attention to the body in general in this way is extremely healing and integrating, just to be with and in our body, this thing that we ignore so much, how it feels, you know, even the result of what we eat. You know, sometimes it just doesn't feel good to eat too many chocolate-covered espresso beans. Um, I noticed that today myself. (laughs) It's good in the beginning, not so good in the middle, and terrible in the end. (laughs) But anyway, talking about emotion, I'm just going to talk a little bit about emotions or those kinds of feelings that can become difficult. When we find ourselves with a difficult emotion, like a fear of something, we recognize that we're fearful or anxious, very good to try to sense it in at the body level. Like, we're not just heads that float around on legs or something. I think some of our self-concept is kind of like that, that we're here or sort of here, our self is two inches behind our eyes. But organically, we're a big nervous system that is really quite integrated, and our emotions, just as common language would have it, we have gut feelings, we have a heart, Our heart has a connection to our brain. Our heart has emotional receptors in it. Our brain has gut cells in it, they've been discovering. There are like intestinal cells here and brain cells here. Plus, we need our whole nervous system for everything. So, integrated sense. 
we can say that like a lot of negative and difficult emotions can give someone heart disease. That actually happens, right? Um, chronic stress is a bad health thing. I think uh, Dan Goldman has said in one of his books that it's worse than smoking for your health to live with chronic anxiety and stress. It shortens your life more. In any case, when we have an un difficult to process emotion, to go into the body is extremely helpful because it helps us drop out of the story or separate the story and the feeling. So in part to work with a difficult feeling, it's good to get what the feeling actually is, the tone of it, the precise uh, mood quality, and the feeling in the body is almost like a very reliable witness for what we're actually feeling. When you feel an emotion like that in the body, you just be very delicate, very interested in where it is. It may be in your head. It may be around your heart. It may be in your gut. Your hands may want to make a fist. Just to be curious about what that is. Maybe the feeling gives you a pervasive sense through your whole body, very subtle shift in how the whole body is feeling. Or maybe it's extremely localized. You can become aware of this. And what's really helpful when emotions are available in the body is that you can start to see them changing moment by moment or minute by minute. And sometimes like I will get really into feeling an emotion like that and it'll go away and I'll be kind of like, hey, wait a minute, where's my really interesting body emotion? But they change. They get bigger and smaller. The unpleasantness um, often gets greater or lesser. And it can be helpful to have a sense of you can do whatever you want emotion, like to have a sort of surrender and say, this feeling in my body can take whatever shape it wants to. Sometimes that can be a little bit of a difficult Thing. And there is a sort of a caveat that if you're feeling extremely overwhelmed, like you go into some very traumatic kind of area or some traumatic re-experiencing and you just really get lost and stuck and swamped, then doing this is not necessarily advisable because your nervous system isn't really ready for it. So you need to, again, chill out and find a place in the body that does feel safe. Look back from that place of safety or like, you can actually ask around in your body, like is your, my shoulder like feeling kind of happy now? Um, and you can kind of peek at the difficult feeling, like take up a little residence, camp out in your shoulder and look out of the side of your eye and say like, I know you're still there, you know? Difficult feeling, I'm still aware of you, I care, but I'm gonna stay here for now. That actually helps develop a sense of choice actually around how we process these things. However, when we surrender in this way into the body, um, often things become dramatically more manageable and interesting, and we start to see the impermanence of it. And I want to say that it, this doesn't invalidate the thinking process. Like when we're in a kind of a difficulty, our mind automatically goes to work to try to bring solutions for us, you know, and sometimes it just takes the form of obsession, you know, that you kind of keep going around and around looking for, looking for the key to get out of this trap that you're in and stuff, and the thinking mind doesn't always know its own way out. So actually bringing in the body as an ally can really help your intuition. You can also at another time perhaps um, just let your thinking, the thinking aspect of a life problem become your meditative focus. We'll talk about incorporating the thoughts into meditation practice later. But to see also within thinking a little bit to make the thoughts slightly transparent and see the energy or the quality of the thoughts or the quality of your reaction to the thoughts. How big is this pattern of thought? Like how much do I think this pattern totally defines me? You know, just to become aware of and register that without necessarily getting sucked in using mindfulness as a little bit of an impartial witness. So, so does this thought pattern feel like it's the same every single time? Like I'm the same person, you know, I'm this really terrible person. How rigid does the thinking pattern feel? So seeing through and listening through the quality of our thinking patterns can be another aspect. But generally, the most useful for us as sort of beginning meditators or not always having 
like such a sharp mindfulness that we don't get sucked in and start believing the thoughts is to feel and allow emotions to digest through the physical body. I will talk a little bit about, um, I tend for me, if I bring up a problem that I wanna sort of help process a little bit more, like sometimes I think about the slowness of my book that has its own organic pace that's growing very slowly. I've been working on it for 10 years and probably in the last five years, I've been wishing it was finished and done because it seems like I've been working on it a long time. And to trust the unfolding of how it is to work on it and to watch it grow slowly, it's actually very joyous when I acknowledge that it, it's kind of an organic thing that grows at its own pace. And when I'm like in that process, not outside it and judging it, it's quite beautiful to say like, I surrender to the way that I am making this thing, this very, very complicated novel that is filled with spinning agendas and all these people's you know, perceptions of each other that have to be discordant and fit together into other ways and nobody should get lost, et cetera. You know, it does take a while. So when I'm really in the process, it's fine. But when I jump outside it and start to judge it, it's excruciating. And the thoughts tend to really be a kind of like very tight thing in my head. The feelings are something else. They're quite different. Um, the feelings are a lot softer. Um, and from the point of view of feeling, I can kind of look at the thoughts and find them to be more transparent. So if I'm in my body and looking at that, um, looking at that whole situation, it just seems to be a little softer, a little more workable. And sometimes that's all we really need is to just feel like it's workable. We can work with this. It's not that we're going to make everything go away. It's not that by our practice suddenly, you know, it's all going to, our children are going to start picking their socks up off the floor or whatever. <laughs> you know. Maybe we can just look at the socks and look at our reaction and feel tenderness for everyone involved. <laughs> that's another advice for when you go home. That's <laughs> those things are still going to be that way. <laughs> but about thought, um, classically, it's said that the mind um, concocts things incessantly. The, as you might say, the mind is concocting a thinking process all the time. And it's like our inner representation of the world. And because we're human beings and because of the way the world is constituted, our thoughts are sometimes very accurate and insightful and good and interesting. And universities are built based on this. They often have predictive value. It's good to be able to remember where you left your keys and stuff like that, to have an image of your keys. You know, all of that is great. And yet, there are times when it's important to remember that our thoughts really are just representations from the practice point of view, from this kind of deeper place that we're also examining our life. Sometimes to say that these are kind of happenings in our mind or to recognize in another one of Manindra's famous sayings, the thought of your mother is not your mother. Right? Somehow it's just so strange that we think that when we're thinking about someone, it really is them. Isn't that true? Isn't that strange? Like when you little step outside it, it feels like it's really them in our mind, but it isn't. Also, when we think about ourselves, it feels like it's really us, right? That's the way the mind works. That's the way we invest a kind of reality into our mind. And very often the self-images that we carry in this way are not so helpful ones to have. They're either much bigger than we really are or much smaller and worser mostly much smaller or worser. It often comes down to just not being enough or not being good enough. Um, that's one of the things about our mind that doesn't always help us, that we sort of store suffering in that way as a self, as an aspect of ourself. So it can be helpful when we think, you know, I am this or I am that, to add a little question mark. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm a really frightened person, but maybe not. Maybe I'm not totally defined by being afraid at certain times. Actually, when we're thinking like I'm a really frightened person, we're thinking like I'm the only frightened person around. So who among us doesn't have occasional worries about like how other people receive us, how much we're cared for, how much value we have, um, whether our job life is stable, whether we're you know, giving and receiving enough from the world if we're gonna have enough money, um, if we might get sick or someone that we care about might get sick. We all have this, I think. We probably all have all of it, 
all of this kind of uncertainty that we carry as a human being and how is it that we can become so uncompassionate and intolerant of ourselves and feel so isolated in that? In fact, some of it is what connects us, really, um, only to be invited to be able to see it that way. So to be with the wanting, to be with the despair, in a way, instead of acting out the wanting or acting out the despair. So we might feel very activated inside, but um, in the path of the Buddha, one of the things that brings us dignity is that we don't always have to act on how we feel. Like we sometimes can choose to give a gentle answer um, when we might not be feeling that way, knowing that it's not gonna help the situation if we sort of hiss at someone. Or sometimes we may need to hiss at someone to get them off of our foot or something like that. We learn to tolerate some of our internal activation in a way that's new for us. And in this way, mindfulness, as Howie said also yesterday, can be a little bit like reparenting. There's so much in each of our history that um, was not okay to feel in our growing up. Like parents tend to pass on the feelings that they can't tolerate in themselves to their children and the ways that they encourage and the things that they you know, like in their kids and don't like become places in ourselves where we like overemphasize or underemphasize and become less than whole. Very gently through this process of awareness, we can become like a nicer parent for ourself. Also remembering that it's in the context of doing this together with all of us and knowing that we're all doing it is kind of like a loving presence. Um, I know that many of you are therapists and you provide that loving presence for someone else. Sometimes we do need that, someone to tell us like, it's okay. Howie and I often try to do that in, a, in, in the Q's and A's to just make it normal. You know, we're all being normal here. It's normal to be wanting things and to be planning our escape and to be pissed off and think that, you know, the color of the back wall is not right. It's a little too mustard-like. It's like a kind of mustard I don't like. That's not true of me. I'm just making up examples. <laughs> I will tell you when it's true of me, though. <laughs> so feelings are, you know, when they're kind of surrounded with this tolerant and compassionate mindfulness, we can start to see that our feelings are just our feelings that we can accommodate them, we can hold them. And when we affirm in a way that our mind and our heart are always trying to help us, sometimes we see that the feelings carry very interesting information for us. Like, I remember when um, someone said to me, like I was feeling the unjust, the injustice of something, some arrangement that I wasn't able to change. And I was kind of mad at myself for being so mad because I had accepted the situation already and it was like, well, why do I have to like be mad if I've agreed already to be in this situation and eh, why must I be like that? And when the person said, well, there's that part of you that really wants to take care of you and have things be fair, that's upset. It was just such a relief to say like, you know, that is true. Like I want things to be fair toward myself and that's all right, even if it's not always being met. But um, to trace the upsetness very often back to a very uh, legitimate piece of ourself when maybe as we were kids, it wasn't allowed. Just to get down to the bottom of the dregs of this, um, so much of our you know, not being able to be with ourself comes from I'm not lovable, I'm not welcome in this place, I'm not worthy, those kinds of very kind of secretly, unconsciously held views. I'm too much, you know, I'm too excitable, I'm too much this way or that way, um, etc. So I just wanna send out, you know, compassion for that, that conditions so much of our pain in life. And when we can find the way of like actually pouring compassion into ourselves, into those places in ourselves that are tight or raw or wounded and not with the desire that they should grow up and change kind of, but just compassion for their own sake. We start to feel different, like less tight and the rose begins to open. Virginia Woolf said, 
Observe perpetually. Observe the oncome of age. Observe greed. Observe my own despondency. By that means, it becomes serviceable. So in her case, she was saying serviceable for her art, for art that touches the hearts and exalts other people, that it came out of this raw ground of her own despondency. It's a kind of self-transcendence that really needs reality as a basis. The same way that um, people in 12-step programs say that no matter how far down the path you have gone, uh, you'll see that your experience can uh, benefit others, that you can bring strength and hope to show what you've healed in yourself, like that you've fallen and you know what it's like. You know what that kind of suffering is like and you know that you can come through it. So it's a very beautiful thing to dig deep in ourself and I think it's part of happiness. And to say that our awareness is impartial doesn't mean in a certain sense that the agenda behind being aware in this way is impartial. It's not neutral at all. Desmond Tutu said, when an elephant is standing on a mouse's tail, the mouse won't thank you for your impartiality. (laughs) Sometimes we're standing on our own tail, right? Um, That's what it's like. But the view in this thing about the beginning, the sustaining, and the ending of our world, the cessation of our world, is a view of very great compassion to bring this worldview that sees us as being so small, to bring that to cessation and to quiet within ourself. We do this by showing up and by cultivating connection wherever we are. And by doing this, which is part of the work that we need to be done, it's one aspect. This retreat is not our whole life. It's part of our life. It's something that will give us more resources to be able to be there for other people. When they talk about mindfulness, it's mindfulness and clear comprehension are the pair that is liberating. Mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampajanya. So in a sense, in this, for the purpose of this talk, it's to be present fully in our embodiment and in our humanity. And there's something about being full in our humanity that helps us see a little bit of the universality of our experience, that our compassion about how we feel, how we feel uncertain, how we might not always know what to do is the same with all of us. That's one kind of human universality that comes along with this practice. Even listening to one another in the groups and feeling like everyone is saying something that's true about oneself to some degree or that we can make a relationship with where each person is. Another part of our humanity is the vision of things being better. This is also part of not being impartial. I was walking with a friend um, today at lunch around the loop, and she talked about the beauty of human imagination. It doesn't mean that we should suppress that beauty. Say, a visionary like Dr. Martin Luther King, who was able to see a better world and a better way of relating of one human being to another, of the equality of human beings, that by speaking from the place of his vision or his imagination of the future, He could bring it closer and bring it to a place where we feel like we could all make that be real. We could all want to live in that world. We could all try to work to make the world be like that. So maybe the Buddha's version of that beautiful world would be, imagine if we could enjoy the beauty of this world without needing to own all the beauty that's here, without needing to make it ours and our own and corral it, if we could um, truly love and support each other without the quality of self-centered expectation and expecting other people to be the way we need to be. We need them to be so that we can be okay. What would that be like? What would that feel like to live without this internal kind of grinding that we all get a little bit dragged down by? Why does joy have to be my joy? 
what would it be like to cultivate really rejoicing in the good fortune of someone else just because they're happy, just because they have a big boat? That's great, right? Could be. Maybe I don't even want to own a boat. I'm happy that it's there. <laughs> it's too much work. But that's actually a practice, um, to rejoice in the joy without ownership, not owning your own joy, willing to share it, and also willing to uh, recognize the happiness of others and not start to compare ourselves and not start to envy or feel bad. Like Just because this is a big author's thing I've talked about in Dharma Talks before. Just because someone sold 100,000 copies of their book doesn't mean I shouldn't read it. <laughs> Writer envy is a serious snake. Very bad. <laughs> So let's talk about like goals and goal-oriented um, behavior. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a goal, except that there's time when the, our passion to get there um, makes us override all the moments in between. And that's relevant here in our practice, that our energy gets lost in pursuing happiness. Um, the question of when is happiness going to be here? Uh, where is it? It's almost as if thinking that it's somewhere else is something that keeps it away or trying to hold on to happiness and pleasure with that sort of death grip is like crushing a butterfly in your fist. Who didn't do that when you were little, like break a butterfly's wing and then feel really bad? I did. Or I took some of the fuzz off and it was on my finger and then I thought, oh God, it's not gonna be able to fly anymore because I just wanted to, I wanted to touch it so badly. Anyway, let's see, like in the ordinary goal of just reaching for a glass of water, the way our mind works is like we see the glass and we want the drink. It's like we're all in that goal and that getting. We miss the movement of the arm. We miss walking to the water fountain. Like uh, We miss walking to the kitchen when we're hungry. And it's really in coming down into that process of life moment by moment that another level of the beauty of life can start to come through. It's like we lose the life in our life by going for our goals. But we, we don't see beautiful trees. We just see a profitable forest to cut down. Um, in fact, our whole economic system is like that. You can't give value to a tree except in bored feet, right? I think actually Mayor Bloomberg came down to saying that every street t tree in New York is worth $80,000. But w what value can you put on shade um, and the rustling of the leaves? So our practice is very much to let the life in life come through, not bypassing our mind and heart, not overriding these moments. But actually, when we start to do that, we start to see a flow or a kind of start to attune to a more universal picture. Our own uh, ability to connect to this more fundamental level of what's real holds what's universal in us. We see in a way that our mind um, is afraid to enter the moments and be still. Would almost rather be upset than at peace at times. Would rather bring our dramas to us. Like a lot of people have said, like I got away from a very busy life and then all of a sudden my mind was insane here. Like what happened? So we're kind of surrounded by external distractions and the internal distraction of our mind. So we collect it and we bring it in and we uh, attempt to kind of shine a very still light on the changing panorama of what goes on for us. Ajahn Chah said, if the mind is enmeshed in its own concoctions and there's no awareness beyond those concoctions, then there's a spiritual barrenness. But when the power of awareness starts to shine through, almost like from behind the screen, where we start to see the light that's part of the images on the screen. It's like another level of reality becomes available to us. We start to be able to surrender and relax into a flow of experience. First there's one thing, now there's another. In the beginning it can be a way of kind of relaxing or releasing is to acknowledge impermanence, to start to see things as a flow, to start to see this moment and then that moment coming and going. There's a joy in watching the pulsations of change like that. 
when your mind starts to sort of tighten up, what can happen as your practice starts to ripen is that actually the natural sort of aversion to imbalance is a signal rather than for struggle, but for awareness to start to kick in. So um, some of the staff here, the snowblower guy told the lawnmower guy not to be embarrassed to run the mower outside the window because it helped people become more aware. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that, that um, like the architect Louis Kahn said, um, sunlight never knew its beauty until it hit a wall. <laughs> One of my great moments of enlightenment was, um, it was a real mini enlightenment. I was extremely bored. And at some point I started to be curious about the quality of boredom, about the exact tone of the grayness in my mind. And there was just enough kind of interest that started to kick in that I completely released. You know, boredom is a combination of inattention and rage. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> or inattention and resentment. But when the interest came up, then the resentment kind of stopped and my mind actually opened completely to a level of peace that I had never really understood was even available before. So then my fantasy um, came right after that of becoming a teacher and reading the phone book to people so that they could become enlightened too. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, it took me a long time to become a teacher and there are no more phone books, so <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you won't be subjected to that. <laughs> All right. I know. <laughs> well, I have been talking for almost an hour, which is a pretty long time, two minutes short of an, four minutes short of an hour, so I'm aware that an hour is actually a long time. Um, we are the entertainment in the evening here. It's kind of like <laughs> we try, we do our best. But at some point, it does start to sort of go on and on. Um, so I'll do a little bit of cutting to the chase here. So let our practice be a sense of real attunement with what's here, an attunement with a sense of life itself as it shows up through me or through the person that seems to be me, through us as us. That's kind of the way the universe is manifesting, um, if you think about it. Maybe it's not, you know, super important. Maybe the ordinary-ness uh, of life is something to be valued, and maybe we need to sort of look at that. Like, I had a whole little piece about how the need to be special as a child might condition us to want more special moments in our practice, even, you know, that it's not okay to be ordinary. It's not okay for us for a moment to just be ordinary. And our regular mind doesn't really see that. Our regular mind is really looking for that wanting, grasping, excitement thing. It's like we're a little bit all like that. Where's the, you know, where's the really high moment? We miss the beauty of this, uh, this moment here that we're sharing together. It's really all we have. And it's like, how do we tune in to the subtlety of really appreciating that? And I think Really, although life is a mystery, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing here. That it's a very important expression of kindness and of value that may have a resonance far beyond our own little life and our own little drama, the drama of our thoughts, that coming here and being here together in a very simple way is huge. And that it, the practice always starts exactly where we are. There's a way that the beauty of that is so staggering that each moment for each person is just the place. In a certain sense, it's where we need to be because it's where we are. And if we take care of our moments like that, one by one by one, to the best of our ability, then when death comes, we'll be able to take care of ourselves again in that way when we kind of face the big mystery the big mystery that contains quite a lot of difficult moments. So I'll end with a statement of Rumi, which is my, one of my current favorite meditation uh, lines. He compares our ordinary state to being drunk. Uh, he says we're all kind of in this tavern where it seems kind of loud and noisy and we're like, you know, having our dramas, our fights, our love affairs and stuff like that. And he said, I, I don't know why I'm here or exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't agree with that. He says, but whoever brought me here is going to have to take me home. <laughs>
So is that okay with us? Like whoever brought us here is going to have to take us home. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.